us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Ooh, that was a really bad time to take a drink of water. Uh, hey, welcome to the Lunloop Podcast, episode number 29. Can you believe it? 29 podcast episodes. Feels like just last week we were at uh, 28. This is the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, trading, and life. And in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about what I'm calling the stop and sweep method for managing your bankroll, your investing or your trading bankroll. But first, I want to do something. I want to wish you all the joy and happiness and good things that I'm about to not get. <laughs> Let me give you some context. A couple of weeks back, I took my daughter to Universal Studios, dropped her off there for some Halloween event with her friends. And that left me with five hours, six hours really, to burn in Hollywood on a Friday night. And like, what the hell am I going to do in Hollywood on a Friday night for six hours? Turned out it was kind of an interesting night. You can go back a couple episodes if you want to hear about it. But now I'm going into a real hell because in about an hour from now, I'm dropping my daughter off at an amusement park here in Orange County. And I'm going to have to burn seven hours, but in a totally different way. Let me explain. So when you think about amusement parks in Orange County, what pops up in your mind? Disneyland. That's what everybody thinks about. But we do have a red-haired stepchild of an amusement park out here in Orange County called Knott's Berry Farm. Knott's Berry Farm is the amusement park you were disappointed to learn that your school was going to for graduation. When you're a kid growing up here in Orange County, once a year you usually go to Disneyland. Take the whole family, you get out of school for a day, you go to Disneyland. And the night before, you're so excited, you can barely sleep because it's Disneyland. The one day a year that you go to Knott's Berry Farm, you sleep like a log the night before. So Knott's has an interesting story attached to it. It's Knott's Berry Farm. Well, there's a reason why it's called the Berry Farm. So let me fill you in a little bit on the backstory of Knott's. So in 1920, a guy named Walter Knott who was a failed farmer in Central California, hopped in his Model T, piled his family in, and drove to Buena Park, California. And there he leased some land and began farming berries. Fortunately, things did not go so well for Walter. His first crop in 1923 was killed by frost, and he barely was able to make ends meet. But he was a big believer in something called rugged individualism. He believed that anybody could be successful through hard work. So much so that he shunned any form of government intervention, which he felt was wrong. So by 1927, after working really hard, he was finally able to buy the land in which he farmed. Unfortunately, by 1929, that's when the Great Depression took hold and land prices dropped all over the country. Now, even though Knott was barely hanging in there, he doubled down and he bought more land and actually expanded his farm. Now, this turned out to be a really good move because without even knowing it, his fortunes were about to change 
thanks to a man named George Darrow. Darrow was a horticulturist who worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he had been tracking down reports of a large reddish-purple berry that had been grown on Rudolph Boysen's farm in the neighboring town of Anaheim. Now, for years, Boysen had been trying to grow this Frankenstein type of berry that was a cross between a European raspberry, a European blackberry, an American dewberry, whatever the hell that is, and a Loganberry. Now, as he was a known berry expert, which must have been a profession back in the 30s, uh, Darrow enlisted Walter Knott's help to track down this mythical berry. Knott had never heard of the berry, but he said, okay, well, I'll help you. So they learned that Boysen had abandoned his growing experiments several years before, and he had sold his farm. Now, they weren't undeterred by this news, so they headed over to his old farm, and they found six frail surviving vines in a field that was literally choked with weeds. They took those vines, they took them back to Knott's farm, and he carefully nurtured them back to the point where they could bear fruit again. Now, once those berries became commercially viable, well, he started selling them. Knott had a little roadside stand that was next to California Route 39, which today is known as Beach Boulevard. In fact, I can almost throw a rock and hit it from here. And he soon noticed that people were returning to buy these large, tasty berries. And they would ask him, well, what are these berries called? And so he just said, uh, boysenberries, named after the originator, Rudolph Boysen. So as the berries got more popular, his wife, who was fairly entrepreneurial, she said, you know what? We can do something with these berries. So she started making preserves, started making pies and selling those. Eventually, she started selling fried chicken, and they developed a pretty robust enterprise there. Now, Walter Knott was a big fan of the Old West, so he took some of the proceeds from all this berry money, the berry tycoon, and started buying some of the structures from old ghost towns throughout California and bringing them to his farm and expanding his roadside stands. So it became almost like this little town, this little tourist attraction. Fast forward a number of decades, they added rides, roller coasters. Uh, it was really the antithesis, let's say that again, antithesis of Disneyland. Disneyland was kind of the calm, nice fantasy rides. You go over to Knott's Berry Farm to ride the more roller coastery things. Then in the 70s, Knott's Berry Farm developed something that is basically a, uh, what would you call it? I guess it would be called an institution out here in Orange County. And they, they started this thing called Knott's Scary Farm, right? Not Berry, not Scary Farm. And it runs through most of October. And what was really cool about Knott's Scary Farm was it was fucking scary. Like back in the day, they would do it where people were dressed in these just grotesque outfits and they would be hiding in little dark alcoves uh, of the park and of the rides when you're queuing up and they would jump out and they would grab you. I mean, it was really scary. Thanks to lawyers, you can't do that anymore. But they still have zombies and vampires and all these weird people that, that run around the park. They also have a ton of scary mazes, all the the rides are transitioned into Halloween-themed rides. So it's a pretty big deal. My daughter wanted to know if she could go with some friends to 
not Scary Farm. I said, sure. I wanted to, wanting to do a, a do-over from my screw-up uh, from the Knotts, or from the Universal Studios uh, adventure. I said, sure. But here's the problem. Knott's Berry Farm requires that if you're under 18, you have to be accompanied by a chaperone. You can't see it right now, but I'm pointing to me, right? So I'm the chaperone. So I'm taking four 16-year-olds over to Knott's Berry Farm. Now, here's the deal. I have to buy a ticket. I have to go in. I can't leave the park. That's their rule, right? If you come in the chaperone, the chaperone has to be in the park. If they find an unattended minor, you know, the staff can say, where's your chaperone? And if they call and the chaperone's not in the park, they can actually eject the kids. So I've got to go into the park. Once I get into the park, they're gone. They don't want to be anywhere near me, and I don't want to be anywhere near them. I want to let them do their thing. And not Scary Farm goes from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. in the morning. What the F am I going to do? I think I did the calculation wrong, right? 7 a.m., 5, <laughs> that, seven? that is seven hours. What am I going to do for seven hours inside the park? That's the problem. I guess I'm going to bring some books. I guess I'm going to bring my laptop. Where do you go inside an amusement park to just get away from everybody and read or do some work? It's not like there's a Starbucks inside of Knott's Berry Farm. Now, there is a place there called the Calico Saloon. Now, I've never actually been in it. I've been by it many times, but the Calico Saloon, I believe, is a saloon. I believe they sell fine craft beer there. So I might get my laptop, get my headphones, <laughs> find a alcove away from the vampires and zombies somewhere in the Calico uh, Saloon uh, and get a few craft beers and do that. We'll see. But uh, God, I am not looking forward to it. I'm really not looking forward to it. And it's going to be a great night for my daughter. It's in, you know, I'm all for that, but I would rather be anywhere else than uh, at Not Scary Farm on a Friday night. Uh, is this the lunch loop? I don't like when people try to make comparisons between trading and gambling because what they're really implying is that trading is all about luck and that the odds are stacked against you. And because of that, well, you can't protect your downside. But that's just not true. In trading, you have the power to limit your downside based upon the choices you make. No matter what happens, you can't blow your account out if you're managing risk in the form of either knowing what your maximum loss is on any trade and respecting your stops or in not having too much risk on one trade. Now, having said that, there are some similarities between poker and trading. And that's because out of all the gambling games, poker is the one that has the most skill and you have the most ability to manage your risk over time. So I'm going to take a term from poker and use it in this little vignette here. And that term is bankroll. Bankroll is the money that a poker player has. Basically, that's their stake. And so in terms of this example, bankroll means your account value, not your, your uh, margin or any of your leverage, but the actual cash that you would have if you closed out all of your positions and subtracted any outstanding margin and liability. That's your bankroll. Now, some of the similarities between a bankroll in poker and a bankroll in trading are, for example, 
if you're a professional poker player, you treat your playing like a business. So in the same way that you wouldn't mix your personal checking account with your business account or vice versa, poker players don't mix their personal funds with their poker bankroll. That's a really good idea for people that are trading. It's a really bad idea to use your trading bankroll to pay bills or to pay expenses. The other similarity is that when you're losing or not doing so well in poker and your bankroll is decreasing, you go down in stakes. You go lower stakes until you can stabilize and build your bankroll back up. So those are a couple of the similarities between poker, bankroll, and trading bankroll. But I'm going to expand it a little bit here, and I'm going to talk about a way that you can manage your bankroll that I think not only is smart, it gives you peace of mind, and it also tells you really how well you're trading. All right, so there's two phases of having a bankroll. The first phase is when you are young and starting out, and you're trying to build a bankroll. Usually, New traders don't have that much money to put into the market and it's tough and they lose a lot. But at some point, if they persist and they're consistent in their wins, they'll start to raise their bankroll and it will get to a point where they really don't need any more money. They don't have to grow their bankroll perpetually. So let's just say, for example, you have a bankroll of $500,000. That should be more money than you would ever need for trading, unless you're just a, you know, like some super high level professional trader, because that gives you a million dollars of overnight leverage and it gives you two million dollars of day trading leverage. And the way I look at leverage is I know that people can use leverage in really bad ways that can blow them up. But for our purposes here, when we're talking about being responsible and using risk, I just think of leverage as an expansion of your ability to buy or hold a position. Um, and again, when we talk about bankroll, we're not considering your leverage. We're just saying no matter whether all your positions are cash, whether there's some cash and some leverage, if you were to sell them all and subtract all your liabilities, what would you be left with at any given moment? So that is your bankroll. All right. So let's talk about a way to manage your bankroll once you've gotten to that mature stage where you have enough money to trade whatever um, you know positions you want. And let's call this, for lack of a better term, let's call this the stop and sweep method. And I'm going to go with that $500,000 mark just for the hell of it, just to make things easy. But it doesn't matter if your bankroll is $50,000 or $100,000 or a million. I think this works with any of them. So let's say that you have that $500,000 bankroll, that liquidation amount. So what you do is you set a stop level and you set a sweep level. Now, these can be based upon a percentage. I think that's probably the best way to do it. That's how I do it. They can be equal, meaning your stop percentage can be the same percentage as your sweep percentage, but they don't have to be. They can be, you know, one can be more than the other just depends on your own personal preferences. So here's the way it works. We started at $500,000 level. When your bankroll gets to, let's say $550,000, that's a 10% increase. What you do is you sweep 
that $50,000 out of your account. Now, obviously, if you've got open positions, let's say, for example, you had you had the whole $500,000 used up in positions and you got to 550000 because maybe you're swinging positions. Maybe we're in a different market environment that, than we're in right now where you can actually hold positions for more than a few minutes. So you're, you're holding a number of positions. The market's going up. You get to five fifty. You can't really sweep that 50000 out because you've got open positions. But the first time you get liquidity for that $50,000, so let's say you sell a position or you sell a couple positions, and now you're holding... $490,000 worth of positions, but you've got $60,000 in cash. You sweep that 50,000 out, okay? You sweep it out. Now we'll talk about where you sweep it out to in a minute. The converse of this is if you start with $550,000 and your account balance goes to 450,000, now you've lost 10%. That's your stop. That's when you, well, you really should probably close your positions out at that point and reevaluate. And of course, it doesn't have to be 10%. It can be whatever stop level you're comfortable with. But that's the whole point is that if you're losing money and you're losing money in your bankroll and you get down to a certain point, you're probably not trading well. There's something that's going wrong. Maybe it's a bad market environment and you're forcing things. Maybe your methodology is not working anymore. Maybe you've got personal issues going on in your life and it's just screwing with your trading. It really doesn't matter. That stop level is a warning sign for you to say, you know what, something's not working. And a lot of people, what they'll do is when they go down, they'll add more money to their account. That's a really bad idea. And we'll talk about that again in a minute. So you go down to that level, that stop level, you sell your positions and you say, okay, what am I doing wrong? You reevaluate, you try to figure out what the problem is, and then you start lower, like a poker player. You go lower stakes, right? You're trading less. You're trading smaller positions. Um, you're doing whatever you have to do to build that stake back up, to get it back up to $500,000 and beyond. All right, so let's talk about the sweep, because I think the sweep is the most important. The, the stop is pretty simple. You're losing money. You sell out, you step away from the market, you reevaluate, you figure what you need to do to build your momentum up and to start winning again. But the sweep is important because the way I look at the sweep is it's peace of mind. You're taking money out of your bankroll. You're taking money away from risk. So where you sweep that money to should be something that's totally not related to the market. Now, obviously, that's up to you. It can be you know, you could just put it into a bank, you put it into a money market account, you put it into a CD. Uh, maybe you're putting it into a rental property, some other investment, whatever it is, but it's not dependent on what's going on in your trading account. And so that way, if you're having trouble in your trading account, you're struggling, it's okay because you know you've swept money out of it that's kind of like... Um, it's not a backup, but it, it, I think it just gives you a peace of mind. Um, you can sweep that money into stocks, but they have to be stocks that are in a different time frame and with a different objective than your trading account. So for example, let's just say that you're, you're, you're consistently making money every year, every quarter, whatever time period it is, and you're sweeping and you're sweeping and you're sweeping, you're taking you know, the cream off the top 
and you're, you're going back to that $500,000 and you're putting this excess money away, you can put some of that money into stocks that you're not going to touch for 20 years. They can be IRA stocks. They could be retirement fund stocks. Even though they are attached to the market, even though they will move somewhat with your trading account, you have a different time frame on those. You have a different goal. So you can mentally separate those stocks from the ones that are in your trading account. Now, I mentioned this earlier. What happens sometimes with people is they make money and then they sweep it and then they have a run of bad luck or something happens and they go down in bankroll size. And then what they do is they take that money that they sweeped out and they put it back in their account. That's a really bad idea because again, your account fluctuations should be telling you how well you're trading. If you're doing better, and, and I mean consistently, obviously anyone can get lucky and, and get a break and have their account go up. But I mean, if you're consistently moving the, the, the level of your bankroll up and sweeping money out, sweeping money out, that means you're doing the right thing. If it's going the other way, you're doing something wrong. So now where this comes into play in the real world is I have, I can tell you so many instances over the last 30 years. I mean, so many instances where people have made a lot of money, uh, sometimes in a very short period of time and did not sweep it out of their account, ended up losing all that money and more. And so the stop and sweep method is not just a good method for people that, uh, you know, that are consistently profitable traders, but it's also a good method for people that don't really know if they're consistently profitable traders. Because look, you can be trading for 5, 10, 20 years before you figure it out. I, I know there's traders out there that, that were up and down, up and down, took them 10 years before they were consistently profitable. But by doing the sweep method, if you get a break, if you get uh, you know if you get a hot hand for a short period of time, you take that money off the table, and then if you can't if you can't replicate that, that's telling you something. That's saying, hmm, okay, maybe I got lucky. And I know people, I know people that got super hot in super hot markets. This happened a lot in the '90s. It happened in the run up to the uh, financial crisis. It happened in the COVID, uh, you know, the post-COVID crisis. I know people that took, you know, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, turned it into a couple million, and then ended up giving it all back, and their initial stake, like went to zero. If they had done the sweep method, they would have taken that money out. It wouldn't come back into their their uh, bankroll. It would be safe in some other investment and it would be very clear to them like, hmm, maybe I got lucky or maybe I got lucky and now I can try to figure out what that was that I did and refine it so that it I'm not dependent on luck anymore, so that it's more something I can replicate on a regular basis. Trust me, it is a super painful story to make a ton of money and then give it back, but that's just the nature of the market. So. Um, I think that the, the stop and sweep is a very smart way of looking at bankroll management. And if nothing else, it can certainly help prevent you from blowing up. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from 
the Lund Loop, whatever you've got me on, um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelungloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.